And the reference for today is uh, Hebrews 13, 5 to 6, which says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I actually think combining these two ideas of love and money is a really useful way to... There's no problem with money. Money's not a problem. It's the love of money that is a problem. Money is not evil in and of itself. At, at its basic form, it's just an inanimate object that just sits there. And I guess that it, in another way, it's kind of an immaterial concept. But money in and of itself, left alone, cannot do anything evil. If you do see a $100 note you know, sitting on the side of the street, you're not necessarily going to be thinking to yourself, oh, what's that, what's that up to? What's, what trouble has that thing got in mind? Okay? It doesn't have a mind to be able to cause trouble. However, uh, as soon as you see the $100 note, then maybe that's, yeah, <laughs> you get excited, but maybe that's the point where the trouble starts to emerge because unlike money, uh, we are moral beings. Money uh, does not have the capacity to be evil in itself, but we do. Because, of course, as soon as you see 100 bucks lying in the street, particularly if it's a deserted street, you're presented with a choice. Do you pick it up or do you ignore it? And then, of course, straight away, yeah, look, it's a no-brainer, of course, you pick it up, right? <laughs> and, of course, it, uh, other choices then follow, depending on what you do. Um, do you tell someone about it or do you keep it a secret? Then, of course, your mind really gets going. It's $100. I mean, it's not that much. Certainly not enough for, you know, if you gave it to the police, they wouldn't put it on the news or in a newspaper or anything like that. No one's really going to kind of try to claim it. And there's no one around in the street. No one's here. Who are you going to tell anyway? You may as well pick it up. I mean, if you don't, someone else will. And they're probably terrible people that will use it for all sorts of terrible things. At least you're a good person and you use it for something good. Really, you should pick up $100 if you see it in the street. That's what I'm saying. Now, nothing morally wrong has necessarily happened at this point when you decide to pick up $100 in the street. But you can see that we're no longer in that morally neutral zone that money in itself inhabits. It's when people who are moral beings come into... Um, contact with money, which has no morality in and of itself, that stuff starts to uh, get questionable because our choices have consequences. Now, this specific verse, as you can see, it doesn't actually say anything negative about money in itself. It says, keep your life free from love of money. And this obviously fits really neatly with that probably much more famous verse from 1 Timothy 6, 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I love the way that verse ends, that through craving money, people have pierced themselves with many pangs. seems to suggest to me that there's kind of self-inflicted wounds which begin to turn up when we love money. So the first point to make is obviously money is not evil in and of itself. It's the love of money which is being warned against here. But you know what? I think this is something you've probably heard before. I think most of us have heard this before. And so I don't really think that saying just that and leaving it at that is all that helpful. Because when we hear someone say money is an evil, just make sure you check your heart, check your motivations, make sure you're okay. Then it's really easy for us to say, oh, he said money was an evil. Sweet. And yeah, my heart's great. So not a problem. Okay, we're fine. And all of a sudden, we can ignore the whole issue of money completely. This attitude, I think, is too easy to have. 
So instead, I want to pose a different question. I want to say, if you were to pick up the Bible and to read the Bible from the start to the finish, without any of your own preconceived ideas of what you might want it to say about money, and actually read it, what sort of understanding of money do you think you would get from the Bible? Well, there's obviously a lot in the Old Testament about money, particularly because so many of the writers of the Old Testament were really rich. There were kings and leaders, but obviously, of course, there were also some kind of wandering prophets as well who didn't have any money at all. So you would get a certain sort of idea about money from the Old Testament, particularly from Proverbs, which talks about it a lot. But then, of course, what if you were just to read the New Testament? I think that you'd get a different understanding again. The people that wrote the New Testament were not necessarily wealthy people and they had some different stuff to say about it. I think that it's a little bit, a little bit different. It's certainly not contradictory, but there's different emphases. And then, uh, what about if you just listen to the words of Jesus alone? Jesus had a lot to say about money. He said some very specific things about money. Once again, not contradictory things to the rest of the Bible but different things. I actually think if we read the Bible from start to finish and we took it at its word without wanting it to say something that it doesn't say, we might be a fair bit more cautious about money than we actually are. Because the real question we should be asking is what is a love of money? What constitutes a love of money? This is a question of definition of terms. Anytime you have a discussion about anything... I'm sure I've said this before here, it's very, very important that you define your terms. Now, we know what money is, and we think we know what love is, but what exactly is a love of money? And that's where we head into this uh, territory of idolatry. Now, there's two main points I want to make about money this morning, and this is them. In the end, money's not the problem. The real problems can be identified by asking, firstly, how did you get it? And secondly, what did you do with it? Notice I haven't said there, why did you want it? Because I'm not actually interested in what we say we believe. What matters is what we do. Our actions stem from our beliefs, so much so that when we say that we believe one thing and we're constantly doing the opposite, I think that we have to question ourselves, how much of us really does believe that thing that we say we believe? Of course, Paul would counter that in Romans by saying, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I, do not know, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So of course there's going to be times that we end up doing the opposite of what we want. We all know that. We want to do something and we find ourselves doing the complete opposite. It's because we're fallen people, we fight with our flesh, and sometimes we lose that fight. But I think that when it comes to money... It's a little bit more clear than that. I think that actions speak louder than words with money because I don't know if I've personally met anyone who tells me that they really, really, really want to do the right thing with money and they keep on doing the wrong thing with money. Although I think that maybe perhaps someone with a gambling problem would certainly fit that category. But you can see that even then, gambling really is about a love of money. It's about wanting more money. You put the money in to get more money back. So... I think that probably most of the time, what we actually do with money is we justify it. We think through everything that we do and what we spend money on and we justify what we do. We make sure we've got it all squared away in our minds so that we really have justified to ourselves that we don't have a problem with being in love with money. 
But the questions remain. What did you do to get it? And then what did you do with it? These are the questions that I think with the help of the Holy Spirit guiding us can lead us to a good self-knowledge of ourselves and discern, help us to discern where our hearts are at. Because this ultimately, like I say, is a question of idolatry. So the first question, how did you get it? How we get our money obviously matters because we know that it is wrong to steal. But it's not just stealing in the basic and obvious sense that's wrong, that we should be cautious of, but also it's cheating people. And this covers areas of being honest in logging our hours at work or not overcharging people for work that we've done. But it also covers the area of making sure that we do a good job at something, that you at your workplace are doing what you've been asked to do and doing it well. A dodgy builder who puts in the minimal amount of work and time and effort and uses the cheapest material but charges as if he's not doing that so that he can make more money is cheating the people that are paying him, which is stealing. A worker who continually ignores certain jobs that they're supposed to do at their work because they know that someone else is going to cover for them is cheating their employer and cheating their co-workers who are covering for them all the time. How you get your money counts because in this case, if you don't earn it squarely by being a good employee and honouring your contract, it's tantamount to stealing. And the foundation of stealing can definitely be said to be a love of money. We want to do as little as possible to get as much money as possible and we don't mind if we're actually being dishonest while we're doing that. It's wanting to earn money and not wanting to do what is right to earn it. But the second one of this, and I think the one which is maybe a little bit less obvious, is the question of how you got your money covers not just um, are you working for it, but also what are you sacrificing to get it. I think this is probably a more likely area uh, for Christians to fall. Hopefully we're not deliberately cheating our bosses or our clients or, or going out and stealing. But also, hopefully, we're not stealing from our families either. Working hard to make money for your family is a good and noble thing to do. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. They have very strong words to say about someone who is not working to provide for. It even says his relatives. We might not necessarily agree with that these days, <laughs> but at least for your own direct family. Although I seem to always be able to take money from dad, so maybe, maybe it still works in that situation, which is great. Providing for your family is not just a good thing to do, uh, but it's the right thing to do. And to not do so is obviously held as a very uh, bad thing in the eyes of God. But there's a flip side to this, and that is do not sacrifice your family for your job. You're making money to provide for your family. You don't sacrifice your family to make money. There is a sacrifice that you make when you get a job to make money. And it goes for both men and women. It doesn't make any difference. You can't be at home with your kids at the same time as at work unless you work from home. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't work. Obviously, we should. But we should all of us be cautious to keep an eye on how much we work. I think these days in our really busy society, this is something all of us should think about a little bit more. How much are we working and why are we working as much as we are? I'm not encouraging laziness or putting off work that needs to be done. Proverbs obviously has a lot to say to 
to that kind of attitude. I am talking here about taking a good look at how much we work and seeing if we're overcommitted. And then, as a result of that, giving our families the leftovers, coming home angry and tired, ignoring our spouses and our children, not able to lead our families well because of how much we're working. Now, some jobs inherently have big-time commitments and there's very little you can do. You find yourself in a situation and that's just the job that you have to do and you have to get it done. And sometimes there's going to be seasons in life in which there are really large work commitments which are unavoidable. That's not what I'm talking about. That's that's different to what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about working more than is required to make more money than is required. Working more than you need to to make more money than you need to. My dad, and I've spoken to dad about saying this, so it's okay. He's all right with it. My dad was in the army and worked an insane amount because of his high rank and his specific job. He had a very important job, which he kind of found himself in. There's not much you can do other than leave the army if the army tells you to do something. Um, And he was often away for long periods of time, and it was was pretty difficult for the family at times. Um, Now, obviously, we all got through it without any major catastrophe. And Dad's job, like I say, it was extremely important, and someone needs to do those jobs. People do need to do those jobs. This was not about dad working extra time to make more money. He was put in a position that he had to fulfill. But through that, I did witness what happens um, when the person who is earning the money is away a lot of the time. I did witness the difficulties that it presented us as a family that we dealt with together, although I'm sure that us four boys weren't always that helpful to mum. I'm starting to realise that more and more, just how unhelpful we would have been. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was always interesting when, when your dad was coming home because that, that mum was going to tell dad everything that happened and we were certainly in for it then. <laughs> but personally, actually through growing up with that and living through that, I made me realise I didn't want a job like that. I wanted a job which ensured that I had good quality time with my family. A teacher's wage is not huge, And there's not much room to get paid anymore. You get to a certain point and then that's kind of it. But it's good hours and it's good holidays. And this is in no way an indictment on anyone who does it differently. This is just the path that I chose. There are heaps of different ways of doing this and I think that each family is going to do it differently. And particularly, I think, assuming that the husband is the one working, uh, each wife is going to be able to handle things differently. Some People are going to be able to handle their husbands going away and some are not. And there's nothing wrong with either of those. It's about talking about it and making sure you're communicating properly about it. There's not really a right or wrong way to do it. For instance, I think that fly-in, fly-out work can get a really bad rap from people. I think that people can be really negative about it because they say, you know, fathers and husbands go away for weeks at a time and leave their wife and kids. But you know what, when they come back, then they have a few weeks solid with no other things to do than to be with their wife and kids. And over the course of a year, I think it's pretty possible that they're actually spending more quality time with their family than people that work eight to five, five days a week. Let alone people that work eight to five and then because of a two-hour commute get there at seven and then they have dinner and the kids are already in bed. And if they work six days a week, well then, you know, you're pretty much stuffed. I think that fly-and-fly-out work obviously puts some certain... Um, pressures on people, but it has some benefits as well. There's many ways of doing life and none of them are necessarily wrong. Each family will work it out for themselves. But the important thing 
is that they do work it out for themselves, that they do talk about it, that they communicate, and that the desire to make money is not put before the well-being of the family. A family which is not able to cope with fly and flower work in which a person has made the decision to do that just because of the huge pay packet when there might be other options available and has decided to do it anyway and it's putting huge stress on the family, that family needs to communicate and needs to talk about whether or not that's the best option. The question is, who is doing the sacrificing? Is it the person doing the work or is it the family? We should give our families our best, not our leftovers. And this is why we ask the question, how did you get your money? This question matters because if you sacrifice your family for the sake of working a few extra hours to make a few extra dollars, that sacrifice was not worth it. We see quite starkly in those situations how much money is being loved. The second question is this, what did you do with it? This is probably the more obvious question than the first one, but I think the first one's important because a lot of people can say, I'm very generous with my money, I'm very... Uh, I, I give my money around, I, I'm sharing with people, I'm not holding on to it, but they still are working extreme amounts and sacrificing their family to get it. But this is probably the more obvious question. What do you do with your money? I'm sure you've noticed that one of the weirdest things about money is it doesn't matter how much you have, you never have enough. Your spending always swells to meet your income. And you can be sitting there going, oh man, next year I'm getting a pay rise and it is going to be sweet, finally. Finally, I'm going to have enough money to live. And then six months after that pay rise, you're like, <laughs> where's it gone? It's like it didn't even exist. Somehow, other things turn up and you've still got the same amount of money, even though you actually have more. Our spending always swells to match our income really easily. And what we do with our money is a really good indication of where our heart is. Now, the truth is we might not love money. And in fact, I think that perhaps a few people love money, but I think generally people that have a love of money, it's not actually money that they love. Obviously, it's the things that money buys them. Some people really like having a lot of money, but most of the time I think we really like having a lot of stuff. We love cars or houses or cooking appliances. That's mine. That's a, I know that's a bit weird, but I really love a good saucepan. <laughs> I really do, and they can be really expensive. When you start getting the really good stuff... Anyway, you can just pray for me later for the fact that <laughs> I idolise saucepans. Or food. I mean, food's another one as well. In fact, that's probably my other one as well. I'm, I'm happy to spend way too much money on good food. But money is the way to get those things. So the way that we spend our money really highlights what's important to us, which leads us into discussing idolatry. And the idolatry of money, I think, is much bigger and much more insidious and much harder to understand and to see in our own lives than we think. Because in our society, a love of money is so normal and so ingrained in us that I think it's very difficult to know if we've got it or not. It's only really the truly horrendous people, like the Wolf of Wall Street guy, that we can kind of see because they're so far out there. We're like, oh, yeah, that guy's got a real love of money. But really, I think that we've all got the sickness in some ways. It's like a land where everyone is sick. So only the, only the people that can't even walk, that are bedridden, they're the only ones that really appear to be sick. But it's so difficult to know in our society whether or not we really do have a problem. And I think a big issue here is this phrase, standard of living. We can get ourselves into situations where because of what we've decided to do, we now need a certain amount of money which is to, uh, to survive. 
Now, I don't think that's necessarily true. We need a certain amount of money to continue living the way that we have decided is the way that we're going to live. Each child gets a room to themselves, a big yard, a few cars, a holiday every year. Now, that might not sound like much. In fact, it sounds fairly average. It sounds fairly normal as a thing to aim at. But it's significantly more than huge numbers of the world's population have. And is it a sin? No, not necessarily, not at all. But I think it probably has more potential to become one than we'd like to think. Of course, we can counter with the claim that, well, it's not like if I go without that stuff that those people, you know, over in Africa are going to have that stuff. But that's not the point. This isn't about fairness. This is about you. It's about the extent to which you're in love with money and everything that money buys you. See, the problem with Western concept of standing of living is that it becomes normal. And then it becomes what we consider we actually need to survive, which is clearly not true. Without knowing all of your individual situations, I would say most of you, if not all of you, could be more generous and could give more. Some of us could give a lot more and we wouldn't die and neither would our children. And that's what the word survive means if you didn't know. That's what survival means. Are you going to die? So when we say, oh, I just can't take a pay cut at work, possibly what we mean is, because of the way that I have decided to live, because of the loans that I've taken out and the food that I eat and the holidays I feel I deserve, I cannot take a pay cut at work. There's obviously a difference there between those two things. A huge difference. And a lot of the time, it's not necessarily because of the way that I've chosen to live, it's It's because we say, because of the way everyone around me lives, I have decided that that must be the normal thing. It's actually quite difficult in society, I think, in our society, a fairly affluent society, to choose to live a lot more simply because of the way that everybody else lives. If I decided I didn't want to have a mobile phone, I don't know what the school would do because they expect me to have one. They expect me to have one. But obviously that's a cost. Because of the way that society is, it actually forces things onto us that we don't necessarily need at all, but that all of a sudden become needs to us. And this is obviously an idolatry thing. But the next question becomes, after we talk about this idea of a standard of living, does it matter? Is it okay to have a certain standard of living and to maintain it? I think that that really is the crux of a conversation about money. You need to get to that point. It's really easy for me to say, don't be in love with money or make sure you're being generous because I think we all feel most of the time that we can tick those boxes. Yeah, no, I'm not in love with money. Yeah, I'm pretty generous. What's more difficult and I think a more helpful conversation is is one in which we all, not necessarily as a church, but as individuals and as families, consider our own incomes and expenditures and the standard of living that we have decided that we are going to maintain. Because once we decide a certain standard of living, and as I said, if our spending always swells to meet that which we make, there's very little left for anybody else. How can we be generous when we have convinced ourselves that we've got no money to spare? There's no line, though. This is the thing. (laughs) There's no definite answer to the question, how much is too much? It's different for everyone. And I think sometimes this can seem like a real cop-out because I can't tell you, oh, yeah, you're doing it wrong because I don't know your situation and I also don't know your heart, which is much more important. But this is not a cop-out and it shouldn't be seen as one. In fact, I actually think 
it should be seen as the opposite of a cop-out because this situation, unlike others, you really do have to do the thinking and the praying and the talking and maybe even the repenting for yourself. No one can come up to you and tell you that you're doing it wrong. You need to be willing to have the conversation, to pray and to decide whether or not there is some stuff that you're doing, some stuff that you've taken for granted, which is extremely limiting on how generous you can be and perhaps is creating room for a love of money in your life which you don't actually recognise that you have. No one can tell you you're doing it wrong. And that can seem really nice because it seems like you're not getting challenged. But I want to challenge you to challenge yourself. You and your family need to talk about this. If you only get challenged when other people challenge you, all you need to do is avoid people that challenge you and you're fine. We should be self-challenging people. We should be willing to examine ourselves, to examine our hearts, to think about what we do, to read the Bible, to pray, to come to conclusions. And this is not just if you have a family. If you're single and live by yourself or if you're a uni student um, and you eat peanut butter with a spoon because you've got no money... You still need to think about this. That's what I did. I lived in a garage underneath someone's house. It was very cold uh, and I used to eat peanut butter um, when I got really, really hungry, didn't have any money. In fact, one time I can remember thinking I was just so poor because I kind of scavenged around the house picking up all the coins I could because I literally had, you know when it goes into red in your bank because of an overdraft thing? And then that keeps going on because they charge you and then, yeah, so that was going on. So woe is me, life is terrible. I'm scraping around the house trying to find coins. I walk to the shop because I don't have any petrol and I buy a tin of like corned meat or something. I'm like, yes, dinner time. I really thought that was very poor. But then I sat there eating my corned meat, you know, playing my $2,500 computer over my high-speed internet and I started to realise, I'm not poor, I just got weird priorities. <laughs> I prefer, prefer to play games than, and just eat corn meat. And that's changed dramatically, actually, at the moment. I much prefer not to have games and have some really good food. But I think that priorities is actually an interesting way of looking at it, because we can really think that we're poor when we're not. In fact, like I say, because of society around us, it can give us an idea of what rich is and what poor is, but really we're all really well off compared to the majority of the world. So as Sondi says, this is an all play. That's his little terminology for saying everyone's involved. It's an all play. We all live in the world, so we all must be conscious of how much we live of the world. This affects everyone. And like I say, I really believe that what we think about money has affected us much more than we think. It's much harder to see because it's everywhere and it's a very difficult thing to be honest with ourselves about because of the sort of, I guess, joy and pleasure and um, just it can, it can help us in so many ways that we can excuse so easily that it's very difficult to be really honest with ourselves about money. Like I say, there's no hard and fast rule about actual figures. Um, so the best that I can do is to give you some principles that you can go home and think about and talk about with your family to consider over the next week. And perhaps a community group, you can talk about it with the people in the community group. So the first principle is this. Consider God's warnings. While being rich is not a sin, the Bible certainly warns us about it a lot. 
I think this is a really important point because we can often look at the Bible and realize that richness is not evil and therefore never think about it again. But let's run over some of what the Bible does have to say about being rich. Obviously, Hebrews 13.5, which is where we're at, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The second half of that is really interesting. Be content. Just be content. There's always something else that we can get. There's all, I mean, I got a, I got a, a, a dent, a dent in my car. Um, and every time I see it, I'm like, oh man, I just wish I had the money to fix that. It's like a little, like just a reminder, you know, of the fact that I don't have the money to fix that. Because apparently it costs $2,000 to fix a dent, but you know, that's crazy. But just be content. I don't need that fixed. It's just this little thing in my head. And when I see other people's cars that don't have it, I'm like, oh, gee, I wouldn't mind that. Just be content with what you have. I've still got a banging car. It's awesome. It's just been banged up a bit, that's all. <laughs> nice little word pound there. Next one. If it comes up. Here we go. 1 Timothy 6, 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Honestly, I don't know how more clear it could be than that. That seems to be a hell of a warning to me. Literally, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. And how many of us desire to be rich? I mean, I do. (laughs) There are so many times in my life that I thought, oh, geez, I could do with a bit of extra cash. It's so easy to think that way. But look at what the Bible has to say about it. It's such a good warning. And surely you've seen examples and seen people that have, thought a certain way, lived a certain way, believed certain things, and then money has come into the equation and it's changed them. Money changes people. And that's what this is saying. Look at what happens. They fall into temptations and snares, many senseless and harmful desires that have the ability to plunge people into ruin and destruction. While money is not evil, it certainly has the ability to bring out the evil in us. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 18. First Timothy's got a lot to say about money. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being rich. I think it's a really important thing to realise. There's nothing wrong with being rich. It says there's people that are rich here. And we should encourage them not to be haughty, Haughty, not to be prideful, not to think that they're higher than other people because of the money that they have. And secondly, for them individually, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Our hope should always be in God. And a lot of the time when we're thinking about planning all of these ways to make more money, we've got this idea in our head that what we're hoping in is money, that money is going to help us, that money is going to be the answer to our problems. And that's uncertain at best. But God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I've been reading a little bit of Augustine lately and he was so against idolatry that he was worried that he was enjoying too much watching a spider spin a web because he was enjoying creation instead of the creator. I think that might be going a little bit too far. But if you want to get a great understanding of some of the pleasure and the joy and the richness that you can have without money, read some of the church fathers and see the way that they lived and just hear the way that they talk about God. They're, so, they're not caught up in the world. They're not caught up in the things of the world. The other part of that, 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 18, 
says that they are to do good, to be rich in good works, not just in um, money, and obviously to be generous and ready to share. People become rich for reasons, and God has got no problem with being, people being rich, but he obviously wants them to be generous as well. Matthew 19, 23 to 24. There you go. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I know there's a whole bunch of speculation about this particular gate um, in Israel, which is called the eye of a needle, and camels had to stoop under it. And a lot of people have said, see, it's not that difficult. All he's got to do is bend his neck, right? Okay. Regardless, let's forget about the eye of the needle bit and just look at the first part. It's difficult. That's Jesus saying it's difficult. It's hard. Once again, not impossible. God does bless people with riches. That's not a problem. But we need to be on guard. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. I mean, that's, that's actually pretty intense when you think about it. There's this whole thing that God is saying, this is, not, this is not of the Father. These things, the desires of the eyes, like having a sweet car, is not of the Father. Now, once again, no problem with having a sweet car. But difficult to have a sweet car and not be in love with it. I think that's the point. It's very difficult. And finally, Ecclesiastes, if you want to get down on something, read Ecclesiastes. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Everything's vanity, according to Ecclesiastes. Actually, literally, everything is vanity. Um, but specifically, money. And I really like what it's got to say there. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. There's nothing that can satisfy us other than God fully. Everything has a limit to it. If you try to find all your satisfaction in your spouse, in your children, in your job, you will not. You will not be satisfied. God is the only thing that can fully satisfy because God is the only thing that is overflowing continually. You'll never get to the end of God. But money has a definite end and there is a definite limit on how much you can make. You will not be satisfied in money if you love it. It's an interesting thing. People that love money, doesn't matter how much they have. They always want more. The second principle here is to understand your heart. A verse that we're pretty fond of quoting here at the project is Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's really important to consider your heart and where your heart is on this issue. Idolatry is a serious issue. And as people, we've all been created as worshippers. We worship all of the time. If we're not worshipping God, we're worshipping something else. And where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So where's your treasure? What do you really treasure in life? What do you spend most of your time thinking about? Once again, this is, I think, too easy a question to shrug off. Of course we can say, oh, we tre- I treasure my family, I treasure Jesus. But what does it look like we treasure? What do we spend our money on? The Apostle Paul was a tent maker by trade. 
His aim was to avoid the appearance of wanting to get rich on the ministry. Paul feared giving the slightest impression that his life work was a pretext for greed. His mindset was not that he had a right to do with his hard-earned income whatever he wanted. His mindset was to renounce any rights that might make people think he loved money. 1 Corinthians 9 says, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So I think a good question is, why would you want to be rich? (laughs) Well, perhaps the question is, why do you want more? Why do you want more than you have? John Piper could be a lot richer than he is. Uh, I'm sure all of you would know there are countless pastors all over the world, in the States, everywhere really, um, that have multi-million dollar mansions and heaps of cars and all that stuff. Now, am I saying there's anything wrong with that? No. I can't say there's anything wrong with that because I don't know their heart. But Piper's taken a different approach and it's kind of for the reason that Paul was talking about before. I can't say that I know the heart of a megachurch pastor that owns heaps and heaps of cars, but I can say what it appears their heart is like. I can say what it looks like they treasure a lot. See, that's the point that Paul's making. He didn't want people to think that he was about money, so he actually actively made sure that he wasn't about money. He wanted them to know that all he was about was Jesus. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong in the heart's of really rich people. That's fine. I'm just asking, what are they making look good? What are they making look valuable? And what do you make look valuable? Do people see Jesus through the way that you live and the way that you give? John Piper made the call that he would not make any money off his book sales. He decided that he could live off the income that he had as a wage from his church and any speaking engagements that he had or any book sales that he had, he decided he wouldn't take that money but that he would give that money. This is what he said. I believed from the beginning that plans should be in place to put a governor on laying up treasures on earth. Otherwise, little by little, I might assume that my wants were my needs and the expenses would expand as they always do to fill the income. So Noel and I put in place a graduated tithe from the beginning. That is, we tried to give a greater percentage with each salary increase, not just a greater amount. So it seems to me as though what he's saying there is he realises that he has a deceitful heart and he wants to put safeguards in place to make sure that he doesn't convince himself of things that aren't true. The way that we think about money before we're rich should be the way that we think about money after we're rich. Money has the ability to change us. And this idea of tithes that he's come up with there does connect us to the third principle, which can be a little bit of an uncomfortable one for churches to talk about, but not really for me, because I don't get paid to preach or to do any work here other than the odd video every now and then. So I can say this without anything personally really writing on it. It's about tithing. Now, tithing is an interesting discussion to have, because I think these days, perhaps more so than ever before in the past, people are cautious about giving to churches. Because tithes are always discussed as giving to God, but we really know, when it comes down to it, that we're giving it to a church, and we're giving it to some people in a church to do with kind of whatever they want. And so it becomes pretty easy, and perhaps even natural, to decide whether or not we tithe based upon what we understand and see of what the church does with the money that they get. 
we see a church doing something with money and we say, well, maybe I'm not going to give them my tithe. Maybe I don't think that's what God wants them to do with that money and I can give my tithe somewhere else. And I've got to admit it, sometimes when you see what a church seems to do with tithe money and you've got a sponsored child in Africa, you can kind of think, well, I think I know who needs this more. The church bought a smoke machine and laser lights and Kiambi needs lunch. So I'm giving it to Kiambi. I know I've thought this way before. I have many times. But tithing is not just giving to a church. It is more than that. I really do believe that tithing is giving to God. And when you let go of the money, giving it to God, in a sense what happens to it after that is not connected to you. You've, you've been generous. You've given to God. And if the people and the leaders that are not using that money well, then that judgment will be upon them. It really doesn't have that much to do with you in that sense. Um, the other reason that I really believe it's giving to God, because now as a leader of a church, you have to know I really pray and think hard about what to do with the money. All three of us do. I'm constantly asking the other two, what's the fruit of this? What is the fruit of spending this money in this way? We need to be judging what we do based upon what fruit it has. We can't be frivolous with people's money because it's not even your money, it's God's money. God has entrusted money to us, he's entrusted money to you and the way that we use that money is important. The money that the project spends should result in fruit. Personally, as a church, we're not quite at that stage of believing that smoke machines and lasers are going to result in fruit, so we're not going to spend money that you have given us on that. There are churches which would identify as being seeker sensitive, which are designed to try to, uh, try to attract people to them, which are not necessarily interested in coming and listening to someone talk in a cold auditorium. And for them, God might put on their heart that that's the way to approach it, but that's not us. We're going to spend the money on doing God's work the best that we can understand what it is. Tithing is not a New Testament command. It's an Old Testament principle. But know this, churches wouldn't exist if it wasn't for tithes, if it wasn't for people giving to them. And the New Testament is clear about people in church being generous and honouring their leaders, paying them for the work they do. It says, do not muzzle the ox. Don't expect people to just be able to give and give and give and never help them out in that process. And it's as simple as that. Churches like ours that are small, we don't produce a profit. So we're not self-sustaining. If nothing else, we exist as a group to serve each other, to love each other, and to serve you in whatever ways that we can. Such an organisation cannot exist in modern society without the generosity of people. So there's many good reasons to tithe. Firstly, to honour an Old Testament principle. The word tithe literally means 10%. So that's where the whole idea of 10% comes from. It's this idea that people would give 10% of their first fruits to God. It's an Old Testament principle. Another reason is to support those people that support you. But I think probably a better reason for all of it is to give to God what is already His. God is the creator and owner of everything, which is why it's not really your tithe that matters. It's not a question of whether or not you give 10%. It's all of your money that matters. It's not just your tithe. You see, if you tithe willingly and you're a selfish miser with the rest of your money, your tithe is not an indication of your heart at all. If anything, 
you're kind of like being a little bit pharisaical and religious and giving you 10%, maybe a little bit begrudgingly, or even happy to give that, thinking you're doing the right thing. But if you're not generous with the rest of your money, your heart's obviously in the wrong place anyway. It's all God's. What you do with every cent of the money that he has blessed you with illustrates what you believe about God and his claim on your life. But this then leads me to uh, the other great thing about tithing. Tithing fosters generosity. It creates in us this idea that our money is not necessarily our own and we shouldn't be so willing to hold on to it all the time. It fosters generosity, which helps to protect the heart from idolatry. A little bit like what Piper did. Putting safeguards in your life to prevent your heart from deceiving you the way it's so prone to doing is a good idea. And this idea leads to the fourth point, which I think is the best one. It's the most fun, it's the most rewarding, but also it's the most countercultural and can be the most difficult. Be generous. Once again, it's pretty easy for me to say this and for everyone to go, yeah, I'm pretty generous. I remember 2009, I bought some 30-cent cones for a couple of my friends. Pretty generous. I actually did do that, so... <laughs> and it's, um, that might sound like a bit of a dumb example, but I've lived, I was in share houses for about six years, and that's the sort of stuff that people remember. Like, I can remember um, going on... Going to... Me and my mates used to go to McDonald's at crazy times of the night to buy McFlurries. And I can remember a, a couple of times in a row... I shouted and I was just kind of waiting for someone to say something or to shout back or to realise what was going on here, that it was a bit of give and take. Never happened. (laughs) And this is the thing, we always remember our own generosity and it's very difficult to remember other people's or even to notice other people's generosity. Don't you think that's kind of true? Because there's always that little trigger inside your mind when you're generous, you know, you're always kind of like, yep, that's one for me, generous. You know, you shout someone dinner and there in the back of your mind a little tally goes up. And usually these tallies, they don't really come into play at all, but they're just kind of going away in the back of their head. And then all of a sudden something happens. Uh, you know, some sort of dispute happens. Someone's turned to wash the dishes and, uh, and they decide they don't want to do it. And they say, I don't want to wash the dishes. I want you to do it. You never do anything. And then all of a sudden the tally comes out. Like, excuse me, I never do anything. I bought you three 30-cent cones in 2009. <laughs> Not only that, but I bought you dinner the other day and we drove to Brisbane and I paid for all the fuel and you didn't even offer to pay for half and I didn't say anything. I was quite happy to do it. Now, how are you saying that I don't contribute? And then all of a sudden, that person who doesn't remember any of those things that you've just told them about pulls out their tally book and reminds you of a bunch of things that you didn't notice either. See, generosity is, it can be pretty difficult because we always see our own and we virtually never see anyone else's. But also, don't you hate that person that kind of is generous and reminds you that they were generous? They're kind of like, this is me being generous. They give you the money, just like, just so you know, I don't want anything back from this. That's yours. Not a problem. And you know, you know they do. So that's the other problem. You can't remind people and tell people that you're being generous because that's no good either. So what's the answer? you just got to get over it. you just got to be generous and forget about it. You've got to be generous and not keep a tally. And that can be really, really difficult. And you've also got to be generous and not expect anything back because that's not generous. <laughs> that's barter. That's, t- that's, that's trading without talking, which is really difficult to do. I've learned that from being married. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you, you talk about it and they're like, oh, I don't remember any of the things you're saying. 
We've got to be generous. And probably what we should be trying to do is to just be more generous all the time. Be more generous. And and if you if you are the sort of person like I am that does buy something for someone but remembers it and then kind of after 20 times just kind of says, well, I'm not doing that again. There's something wrong with me in that thinking. That's not real generosity. You've got to be generous without keeping tabs. And be generous not just in your money but with your time, with your house, with your car, with who you are as a person. Love people actively by being generous with them. We get told by God, to love God and to love other people. Generosity is virtually the the main way that I can think of that you can love people. And I don't just mean money. I mean everything else. If you're the sort of person that just gives money to people all the time but you never talk to anyone, there's something wrong there as well. You've got to be generous with who you are as a person. And like I said, this is a great safeguard to protect you from falling in love with money. Let the money run through your hands instead of holding on tightly to it. How generous should we be? That's kind of really the question. I remember asking one of my pastors at another church when I went there whether or not pastors should own big screen TVs. That seemed to me to be a really important question to ask because, I mean, you could buy a smaller one, (laughs) couldn't you? And then you could give that money and you're a pastor, surely. Come on, you should be giving your money to everyone, right? But it's a slippery slope that never has an end. There's never an amount which is everything. I mean, Jesus said to the to the rich young ruler, sell everything and follow me. And he's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not selling everything. How generous should we be? Well, I think a kind of good rule said by my old friend C.S. Lewis. <coughs> I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. I think that's pretty solid, but I also think that's pretty difficult to accept. All right. What we do with our money matters because it reveals what we love. I think that we all have a pretty natural desire for money, because we need money to survive. The issue is that we have substituted the word survive for the word prosper, and now we have a strange view of what the word survival really means. Is there anything wrong with prospering? No. Is there anything wrong with being rich? No. But what you do with your riches really matters. What are you making great with your money? If you were to look at your expenditure over the last six months, what have you spent your money on? What are you highlighting, even if it's invisible and only seen to yourself, what are you highlighting as the most important thing in your life? And what are you highlighting to others as important? This isn't just about giving money to a church. This isn't just about tithing. This is about doing what Jesus asked, looking after the poor, the sick, the widows and orphans. There was a time that's what churches did. And so when you gave to a church, the church did that. There's no reason that you can't do that. No reason that you can't look after the poor, the sick, the widows, the orphans. I mean, he told the rich young man to sell everything which the man was unwilling to do. That guy did everything else. He said, "I've, I've fulfilled all of the other law. What else do I have to do? 
The one thing he couldn't do was to sell everything he had. The question with our money is, what will make Christ look great? Does the way I use my money and time make Jesus look great? Or does it make cars look great? Or houses? Or me? Now, if there's been something that I've said this morning that you don't like, if there's something that's hard to hear, why? If in your mind you keep returning to the fact that having a few cars is okay, or I give plenty, I should be allowed a few luxuries, I work hard for this, what's going in your hearts? Why do we rebel at this? I'm not saying that those things are even bad. I'm not even saying you shouldn't have them. But we've got to be honest with ourselves. Really, really honest. We've got to be willing to be brutal with ourselves because this is one area that it is far too easy to be deceived in. To finish up, I return to what I think is a biblical warning. Wanting to be rich is dangerous. At the end of the day, you're only hurting yourself. The Bible gives clear and repeated warnings about riches. So the question remains, why would you want to be rich? If we believe Jesus and take him at his word, it is difficult. It's difficult to walk the line of having a lot and still treasuring Jesus above everything that you have. It's difficult to remain humble and to retain an accurate view on life and what is really important and to have accurate self-knowledge. Being rich is not a sin, but for some people, it could be a curse. I've prayed a prayer before that I'm not really sure I want God to answer it. But that is that God would not give me more money than I can handle. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If I'm not strong enough to handle riches well, I don't want them. Of course, I'd like God to make me strong enough to be able to handle riches well. (laughs) But even in saying that, I think that my motivation is wrong. 1 Timothy 6.9 could not be more clear. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into many senseless and hurtful temptations that bring soul into ruin. It seems obvious, at least to me, that it is hard to be rich. But to be sure, the world needs rich Christians. It needs good men and women that are able to be rich. But it needs rich and generous Christians, not just rich ones. For those of you that have been blessed with wealth, I encourage you, to ensure that you're not in love with money, that you make it and you use it to make Jesus look great. For those of you who have not been blessed with riches, the temptation to love money might be even greater for you. Let us all be content with what we have, trusting in God to provide for us what we need to survive so that we can live generously, loving God and loving each other. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you provide for us that you love us and that you are the source of all joy. And when we look for joy in other places, when we go to other things, we find emptiness eventually and often despair. I pray that you would uh, reveal to all of us that your Holy Spirit would be at work and that conversations would be happening this week in people's minds, with their families, with their friends. Uh, that people would talk about money in a way that honours you, that we would all be willing to have a good look at ourselves, and that you would reveal to us ways in which we are loving money more than loving you in the way that we live. Thank you for the fact that we can rely on you, that we can be content knowing that you will protect us, that you will provide for us. Amen.